is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Goliathan! Like shapeshifters, only a lot more into Houston folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello the internet and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. Where we discuss political science and popular culture, as always hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Roderman. Today we're going to be talking about Spider-Man, which is a favorite topic. I think all these topics are favorite topics of Brock and I. Um, We're talking about the Spider-Man movies as well as the character. Um, Discussing it through a international relations concept called the Responsibility to Protect, or R2P, which is an interesting modern concept. But before we get into that, we have our Agora Podcaster of the Month, Um, and his name is Chris Stewart, and he does the History of China podcast, which you can find on the Acast network, uh, the Acast app, um, and you can read a brief description of it on the Agora Podcast Network. It's a really interesting podcast because I think especially for well, for a lot of work that I do, China's super fascinating when it comes to political science and history because it's one of the first states that developed, um, you know, one of the first modern state systems. So it's super interesting to delve into the history of China, especially because it's quite uh, neglected in Western scholarship, or it has been up until the present. So go have a listen to that, guys. It's super awesome. Cool. I want to talk about Spider-Man. Um, I want to talk about the franchise because there's uh, there are quite a few concepts that come out of that that we could use to analyze political themes. Mm. But um, but before we get into responsibility to protect uh, and that international norm, I want to find out what your feelings are on the, on the franchise. How do you... Well, I mean, I love Spider-Man as a character. I, I like Spider-Man has always been my one of my favorite superheroes because he's one of the, like, in terms of superpowers, he's actually one of the weaker superheroes. So, you know, I mean, he, he's got super agility, kind of, you know, more than average strength. You know, he's stronger than, the, than the, a, a normal human. But, like, compared to other superheroes, most other superheroes can take him, can take him on one for one. But the thing that sets Spider-Man apart is that he's an incredibly intelligent individual. So he uses his intelligence plus his, you know, abilities to win a lot of his um, his uh, his contests, which I think makes him really interesting as a character. As to him, <laughs> I don't find his, I don't I don't find his his abilities that interesting because like his his ability in fights is really down to no one can kill him. Like his ability is he can't die. <laughs> Just because you know he's, he's like an insect, you know, it's really tough to fracture all these bones at the same time, make sure his organs stop working at the same time, and you know, in some way he finds a way to either survive the attack yeah, or just or get away I mean, in time. Was, if you put Spider-Man's powers into another individual, I think that that individual would get super owned. It's because Spider-Man has, uh, you know, he's a very smart kid that he can, you know, he always kind of thinks his way out of situations. I mean, when he fights Venom, Venom is you know, just way stronger than him in pretty much every way except for intelligence. And Spider-Man uses his intelligence. So in a way, like his greatest power is the fact that he's a smart guy. So he's kind of like me. Well, I think, but I think that's, that. you know, I agree with you, but the attraction is, is deeper than that. It's also because uh, he, the character mm. appeals to so many adolescents that um, it's your body's changing. Uh, you don't really know 
how and why it's changing, but uh, you don't know what to do about it. You, you just the the concept of Spider-Man makes you seem more more special, more unique, and uh, and capable of taking on the world in some. Well, that's definitely the thing. I mean, Spider-Man is a metaphor. So, so, yeah, but the, the narrative here being that, um, what would you do if you know if if your superpowers were real? How would you behave? What 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 would how would that change yeah, your I mean, life? Well, like course? if I got Spider-Man's powers, I don't think I would become a superhero. I would. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'd probably find a lucrative career path that utilizes those powers. Considering that the world we live in, if a superhero actually appeared, he'd get super owned by like every military on the world or in the world. That's what I think. Yeah, but but you kind of do see you kind of do see Peter Parker like become quite cocky and arrogant with his powers, and you know he he's always got these smart ass comments and um and jibes that he gives to to his villains and the people that he fights. Like you can see him really taking on the role of. Well, I used to be the nerd in school, and now, but now I'm, I think, you know, a I think that Spider-Man or like Peter Parker get... himself is the quintessential adolescent male nerd. So, if you consider like Peter Parker, he's a very introverted, self-conscious individual. You know, he's not very confident when he's Spider-Man. However, which if you like bring that into like a fantasy that many nerds have. Then he becomes cocky because then he's got the power. So, like, he's got these two almost like multiple personalities. Yeah, I think that. But I think that that's what I'm trying to say is, is the reason the character is so enjoyable is you can see you could you could see him doing the yeah, things exactly. that you know most people would think about doing. Yeah, and and um, behaving in the same way. But I think you know the main the, from the point of view of the franchise. I mean, it's interesting because Spider Man represents a problem in. The mo- in our world, which is the fact that Marvel doesn't own Spider-Man, the movie rights to Spider-Man anymore. That's owned by Fox. So that's uh, that's why Spider-Man hasn't appeared, except in the latest Civil War movie, which was a deal made between Fox and um, and, Mar- and Disney, who owns Marvel. But you know, it's very you know, obviously Spider-Man is a member of the Avengers in the comic books. He's a he's an integral member of the Avengers, so he should have been there from the beginning. But, um, you know, they can't add him in because you get into a whole lot of legal fights. And the reason that we keep getting Spider-Man reboots is because for um, the reason that they have to keep him, they have to keep rebooting him, is if they don't make a, a Spider-Man movie, I think, I think it's every five years or every ten years, they lose the rights. So that's why we keep getting reboots. Um, I just wish that these corporate guys could stop focusing on that stuff and just sell him to Marvel and so we can get some really good crossovers. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't agree more. But it does allow a repetition of themes, um, which in many cases is boring. But you do see one of value coming out, which is that, well, I mean, we all remember, no, we all remember Tobey Maguire playing, you know, the first Spider-Man, especially in the first Spider-Man movie where he watches his Uncle Ben die in his arms. And Uncle Ben gives him that one unique, uh, phrase it to live by that he says with great power comes with great responsibility so he gets to use that he gets to you know really focus his life and his superhero life around that phrase um and you know it comes out with andrew garfield's amazing spider-man as well and even in the civil war film our, our new spider-man character yeah. gives a, a good illustration of that um when, by saying that when when you've got the power that i do and bad things happen then they happen because of you in other words, if you had the power to stop it, you should have stopped it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to see the the like the two reboots that we've had in the past, you know, two decades. 
in that the first, you know, the first three movies with Tobey Maguire, it was with great responsibility. Sorry, with great with great power comes great responsibility. But the way it's phrased in the Garfield ones is that if you have the if you have the power, then you have the moral responsibility to use that power for good, which is taking that a little bit further. It's like a, a step further because you can then apply that to a whole bunch of different different um, scenarios. It's not just using your power responsibly, but it's also actively using that power to protect other people as well. So you know, don't not don't just not be a villain, but be a hero. Toby Maguire's Spider-Man. It's also you have um, when you with that power, you have the responsibility mm. to do good. Um, so it's not just avoiding the bad; it's that you must actively pursue the the, the best mm. possible good you can achieve mm. with the power that you have. And that's not to say that you you have to be a superhero; you have to be a crime fighter because that's the best way you can apply your powers. It's just to say that when whatever you choose to do. Make sure that it's a good thing, and make sure you you're doing mm. it as as best as you possibly can. But I could can. imagine two different responses. Like if I was in a boardroom in a corporation, like at BP, and I said to them, "Guys, with great power comes great responsibility." Uh, you know, that could be taken like, "Okay, so we have the power to do certain things. We have to use that power responsibly. So within our sphere of influence, we need to use that power responsibly. So don't blow up oil wells." You know, that's responsible use of our power. Make sure that we use good environmental practices. But if I say, if you... No, I think it's more than that. I think that board would respond by saying, um, maybe this is the idea, the idea just to me coming out. But I think that board would respond by saying, we, we have the responsibility to keep the planet mm. clean and to make it clean, you know, where, wherever it isn't. Um, so, it's, so we've got to like, you know, um, practice so, uh, corporate social responsibility. We have to initiate projects. Um, we have to have uh, not just a public face, but also a real, <clears throat> excuse me, a real effort in in protecting the planet. If that, if if we if we have that responsibility to do, if we have the response, if we have the power to do it, then that's our responsibility. Yeah, exactly. It's not just uh, but avoid I think you could even take that a step further and say, well, BP has the power to end, you know, exploitation of workers in Angola who are working on oil fields. And even stuff that might not have anything to do with oil, that they, they could have the power to operate in that arena. And if they have the power, they, should they have the responsibility to get involved? I mean, you know, should, should BP be getting involved with making sure that poverty is ended, for instance, given that they have the power to do so, which is maybe taking it too far, but that's where an idealist would take that. I would say, yes, if they have the power to do that, then it's, it's part of their list of responsibilities, but then, Practically, you've got to prioritize them. So, yes, I wouldn't say don't strike it off the list, like you know, work towards ending poverty. But if you if you work in the field of of oil digging and, and refinery, then then focus on it. Make sure your your employers are not your employees are not um, exploited, and make sure that they're protected and that they're treated well. And once you've you know satisfied that responsibility, then maybe move your way down to any global global exactly. poverty if if BB can do that. Um, so, so I wouldn't say, oh, just because you can't, or just because it's not directly in the in the realm of of oil refinery, that you that you shouldn't be focused on any yeah. global poverty. No, you absolutely have yeah. the, and I think the responsibility. Another thing that so. makes Spider Man interesting is that Spider Man's character, especially in the early days, like I suppose once you get into the comics and when Spider Man gets older and he's you know actively involved, you know, 
again with the fight against Thanos and Civil War and all that. He, you know, his character obviously matures. But the interesting thing about Spider-Man in the movies is that he's fairly naive in the way that he applies this "with great power comes great responsibility," um, you know, principle. And like the example that I always think of is, and this was actually brought up by you know the, the website Cracked. I don't want to just steal their stuff without giving them credit. Um, that you know, Spider-Man's whole thing is that Spider-Man, uh, Peter Parker, is intricately linked with Spider-Man in that he takes pictures of Spider-Man for a living. Which I mean, like I suppose from a teenager's point of view, makes sense. It's like, well, that's how I'm going to earn my money. But then he doesn't tell anybody that he's Spider-Man. So when a villain inevitably wants to kill Spider-Man, they know that Peter Parker has a relationship with Spider-Man. So they go after Peter Parker's loved ones because they think that Peter Parker would be the, the weakest point on which they could you know, apply pressure. But because Spider-Man doesn't tell the people that love him that he is Spider-Man, they are completely caught by surprise and they don't know what to do. Whereas if Peter Parker was like, hey, Aunt May, just to let you know, I am Spider-Man. Here's a cell phone. So if shit goes down, there's like an emergency button. I will be there like ASAP. <laughs> I think it would solve a lot of problems. No, I think that that would solve problems, but it wouldn't be as effective as just not taking pictures of yourself because then people won't associate him, you with him. It's, I think it's, that would be a lot more effective. Find another way to earn money. Like you, you're freak, you're a freaking scientist, man. Like, you know, you've got the skills to yeah. be employed. Just like go Clark get a regular job. I mean, he works at a newspaper, but he doesn't write articles on Superman. Lois Lane does that. Clark Kent tries to stay as far away from yes. Superman as possible, which makes sense. I think that the naivety is an interesting part of this principle because it kind of brings into contrast this idea between this realist application of the responsibility and idealism. I think let's get into how, how this responsibility comes into the real world. It's, you know, it's, um, it's an international norm that it has come up, well, just formalized in 2005 at the UN World Summit. Um, but it was, it came about because at that time, which or prior to that time, you know, in the 90s especially, there had been a lot of uh, genocide, there had been uh, war crimes, there had been ethnic mm. cleansing, crimes against humanity, so like a lot of bad stuff. You know, People mm. were killing a lot of people. Uh, but the, the nature in which it took place is what gave, is what allowed this concept to be recognized at international level was because this, this level of crime was being committed mm. at a st- by the state. So it was state persecution of its people. And since the state itself, by the social contract, is charged with protecting its people, when it becomes mm. the perpetrator of violence, it not only does it have the ability to act violently against masses of people, and, if, and in doing so, it violates the social contract. It is also a very powerful actor against which to act. So people, so you know, civilians who wish to fight back against yeah. it, stand a small chance of success. So that, so then you, everyone is begging the question: Who defends? Mm. Hutus from Tutsis, who defends the people living in Darfur from, mm. uh, you know, from the state of Sudan? Um, who can get involved effectively to stop that? And the, the answer of it practically is, well, it has to be another state. It has to be another actor, certainly on a military level that has the capacity to coordinate, you know, vast amounts of troops and resources to, um, to effectively mm. protect large bodies of people. And that's and, and that's when people start asking the question, well, do other states actually have the responsibility to protect civilians outside of its its boundaries, outside of its social contract? And if so, why? 
since the social contract is formed between uh, civilians and, and, and people um, within uh, within certain boundaries to protect people within those boundaries, surely everyone outside of that is left to their own devices. Um, and you know that was the big debate in two thousand and five, and it came out that actually uh, it was a, it was a victory for for the individual. It was a victory for the civilian because it recognised that the state exists because of and yeah. due to civilians. Uh, so it's so it's not that the state is more important. In other words, the the principle of sovereignty and state sovereignty it was not more important than individual yeah. protection and individual safety. So so the the security of the individuals prioritized mm-hmm. above the security of the state. And in doing that, it's um, a lot of the responsibility to protect those individuals was endorsed by other states, which meant that if you, as leader of a country, um, use state resources to persecute people. You're gonna have you're gonna suffer a backlash from other states, provided that your civilians don't have um, another uh, another resort. So mm. we, we mustn't forget that the responsibility to protect or the intervention yeah. by other states is a last resort. It's not like, oh, um, you know, the I don't know, the state of Myanmar took down somebody's tweet against the authoritarian regime, mm. and now the United States must invade. It's that in, there must be no other yeah. rec- uh, measure of recourse. There must be no other means of of protecting the the civilians. And then you can look at. Um, and I think that that's important because just to give it some historical context, you know, when the modern state system was formed. <laughs> yeah, because I never when the do modern that state well. system was formed in the you know the Treaty of Westphalia, which we've spoken about. I don't know all the time. Um, you know, sovereignty was the most important principle at, in that in that system. Was that basically no other state could intervene in the affairs of any other state. Sovereignty was the most important. And uh, like, remember at the time there was no real condi- you know there was no idea of universal human rights. Um, you know that that idea hadn't even been formulated yet um, at a state level. It was only really post the Second World War. When you know the huge atrocities had been committed, you know, so the Armenian genocide carried out by the Turkish government, obviously the Holocaust carried out by the Third Reich, um, you know, then later on in in the nineteen fifties, the the pogroms carried out by the Soviet Union, where states started to think like, oh, hold on a second, we've now, you know, the UN has been established, we've accepted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, should states have a responsibility to protect the human rights of people who live in other states, given that we've now already agreed that we have universal human rights. So if they're universal, surely we have a right of responsibility to protect those rights. The problem is, is that when you look at it historically, the idea of sovereignty is so heavily ingrained in the international state system that it had to be real, it had to be pushed up to this point where basically it's war crimes and genocide where things where other states can intervene, but I feel that eventually, as as the modern state system evolves and maybe state borders start to become more permeable, and you know we start to move in and out a bit more, and maybe states become a little less permanent, that we will start to see more intervention on the part of bigger states uh, to protect human rights. So maybe, you know, the right to human dignity might become more yeah. protected well, by international state systems. Obviously, this is way in the future. Yeah, that mm. that's certainly something I would hope for. But, um, but there is a problem there that we have yeah. to recognize is the problem of human rights. One, that it is 
um, a universal concept and two, that it has become such a relative concept. You know, to states such as China and even Russia, the um, human rights are very contextual. They don't regard the same things yeah. to be human rights as Western states do. So when people claim, oh, look, China's, you know, abusing its, the, the human rights of its citizens, China will turn around and say, you know, bugger off, leave me alone. I have, first of all, I have sovereignty as the state of China, but also I don't regard, um, you know, the freedom yeah. to speak against the regime as a human right. So just because I violate that doesn't mean you get to intervene. Doesn't mean that the right, the responsibility to protect gets to be used against me. Um, so that's one big problem. And because of that, that relative, um, problem, we need to, there's, we need to remind ourselves that the imperative to condense those human rights. Um, one down to, you know, the universal stuff, the fact that you can't just use the responsibility to protect in every situation. It only applies to genocide, uh, you know, um, mass murders, uh, ethnic yeah. cleansing, like the really bad stuff, basically, um, that, yeah. that no relativist can deny. Uh, and when we accept that it's only on those levels that response that are to be needs to be implemented, that they mm. that it should be the last resort. Uh, you know, the United Nations mentions this by saying the state carries the response, the primary responsibility mm. to protect its citizens, um, and then the international community is only responsible for encouraging that state to fulfill its responsibility. And if it fails in that en- encouragement, very soft, uh, then the international community has has the responsibility. To use the appropriate diplomatic means and, you know, other humanitarian means for protecting the populations. And if those three fail, if you fail to, if the state fails, if you fail to encourage and if you fail to use diplomatic means, only then can it physically, can other, can the international community and other states physically get involved in, um, in protecting another state's citizens. Guys, we've got some super awesome news. We have our first sponsorship for the podcast, which means that we are growing fast. Um, it's awesome. And it's a sponsor. It's Amazon's Audible, which is really cool. Um, so for you, the listeners of the Lands of Leviathan podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. So get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash LOL. So that's Lands of Leviathan, but it's LOL. So www.audibletrial.com forward slash LOL. Over 180,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I highly advise it, guys. Yeah, I, I strongly suggest it as well. It's an app that I like to use and, uh, you know, it lets me download any audiobook that I want from Amazon's library and listen to it on my, on my cell phone. I can listen to it on my audio device. Uh, whenever I'm doing something pretty mundane, if I'm doing housework, if I'm catching the train or walking somewhere, get to catch up on any professional or studying or any leisure readership that I need to do. And it's, uh, it's just too convenient to ignore. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah. And, um, you know, one of the best uh, things about it is that you can catch up on some really cool works that you may not have read in um, on paper form. So one of the things I recommend is uh, a book that we've spoken about quite a lot is Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, which is on Audible in audiobook format. So you guys have no excuse not to know what we're talking about next time we talk about it. 
That's true. I've also got two books by Francis Fukuyama that lets me catch up on his ideas of political order and the origins of political order. So um, it certainly helps us, you know, keep us informed with uh, both our studies and, you know, giving us content for the podcast. That's right. Awesome, guys. Uh, so go have a look. Um, remember, it's www.audibletrial.com forward slash lol. Now back to the episode. So having having said that, Peter, do you think that the that Spider-Man walks himself through all of those steps and satisfies all of his criteria before embarking <laughs> on his responsibilities to protect the citizens of, well, see, of like, New York. Obviously, no. Because, like, this is something that's so... I, I find it fascinating about popular culture is that we simplify these concepts down so much that they almost become unapplicable to, to politics. So... The response—I mean—the responsibility to protect is a lovely concept. It's—it's—it's it's, it's awesome. But Spider-Man himself is accountable to nobody. He's Spider-Man, so you know he's not under any kind of authority by the state. He doesn't have any—you know—he's—he's he's just not accountable. He does what he wants to do, and he does what he thinks is the right thing to do, based on this principle of with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, which makes him a great character. It makes him a exactly. great character. But the to thing about Spider-Man to, is that um, he is an inherently good person. So that's you know, I mean, what, that's why I said he's, he's inherently good. Sometimes he might fall off the rails every now and then. He might suffer from you know some self-confidence problems. But at the end of the day, he will do the right thing because he's being written by a bunch of writers, which is you know always <laughs> awesome. So no, I don't like to answer your question. He doesn't go through this process. You know, he sees a mugging and he's like, okay, muggers are bad. Person being mugged is, you know, probably good. I don't know their backstory, but I should probably look after them. And I have the power to protect that person going in there. And I probably, he doesn't even think that. He just jumps in and stops the muggers. Um, so, but I mean, if you were to get Spider-Man to like, hey, Spider-Man, should we intervene in the Rwandan genocide at this point, and he would just be like, "Yeah, of course." And uh, you know, the international arena probably should have because that was one of the largest fails <laughs> of you know of the responsibility to protect. We didn't intervene enough in that situation. Yeah, but yeah. you know, what if we say like, "Hey, yeah. Spider-Man, should we intervene now in the massive migrant problem that we're having at the moment with the huge amounts of refugees coming out of Syria?" Spider-Man's immediate response is, of course we should. Get all those refugees, bring them to the United States, and look after them. And then we can say to Spider-Man, okay, that's that's lovely, Spider-Man, but now what do we do with like economic divisions when uh, people come in and start to you know, get onto the healthcare system? They're starting to you know, not pay tax or not pay tax. How do we deal with the economic problems that go along with what you've carried out? And Spider-Man says... I don't know. I'm not an economist. Fuck you guys. I just helped out. <laughs> so, you know, that's, I think that those are the things that Spider-Man doesn't have to deal with is the political fallout of the decisions he makes. Not, and just be, I'm not saying that we shouldn't help refugees because I absolutely should. I'm just saying that Spider-Man would not be responsible for thinking through the problems that go along with that. If he were more prudent in the buildup to, in satisfying the, the, the prior criteria, do you think that he would have a different response? So if he went through one, getting the state of Syria, if he acted like a diplomat, try to get the state of Syria to encourage it to protect its citizens, and he failed, 
And then he tried to have diplomatic, you know, negotiations with Syria on how to solve the refugee crisis and failed. Do you think he would then still have the same uh, response? Oh, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> um. Well, well, when you do have an answer, I've got a follow up question is if he does have the same response, if he still says, okay, the Syrian state is really failing these people. They really have nowhere else to go. They have to go somewhere. Let them come to the United States. Do you think he would do so uh, without having considered the the political, social, yes, and economic I implications? Think that he would go ahead and do what he thinks is right, regardless of the political fallout that may occur. And and do you think I, that's not, a bad thing? I, I, I hate to generalize and say that it is a bad thing all the time, but it can be a bad thing. I mean, there there have been multiple occurrences of people doing what they think was right. And the political fallout was absolutely massive. Okay, so then we got then we. So you're saying that the deontological approach is often problematic. Okay, that's fine. I'm not. I'm not going. I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not going to say you know just because you're doing the right thing doesn't mean you're always going to get positive results. You're obviously going to get problems. But the reason why I stand on the idealist side is because those problems that you might get from following the deontological approach from from you know practicing your responsibility according to, relative to your power is that the problems you might get from that are not necessarily going to be as great as the problems that you were trying to solve. So sure, you might get problems, but well, they're there easier problems to deal with. Where the right thing was done uh, according to the responsibility to protect which hadn't been brought into place yet. And that was, I mean, obviously this, this is up for huge debates, but I think the establishment of the State of Israel um, after the Second World War is a good example of this. So the, the British had the had seized a whole bunch of, of territory um, after the First World War. They occupied Palestine. Yeah. They had that whole area under their control. And according to the norms and values of the international state system at the time, they had seized that from the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire ceased to exist. Done. That's theirs. They can do what they want with it. They, after the Second World War, a, a massive amount of damage had been inflicted against the people, the, the Jewish people, in the Holocaust. And one of the solutions that had been bandied about was the Jewish people need a state uh, in order for them to protect themselves. That's, a, I mean, a lovely idea. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, 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 I completely agree with that, that the Jewish people should have, should have had their own state and should have their own state now. The problem was, I mean, obviously now you, you put them into a colonial perspective. I mean, I think it was the, the, the Treaty of Pierre Suar and you, you put them into into a situation where they're now taking over land from another group, and the British exercising their imperial colonial power to do so. Obviously, there were British people, British diplomats at the time who wanted to have a friendly power in the Middle East that they could then, you know, you negotiate with against other states such as. Well, Iran didn't even, you know, I mean, the Middle East was a very different place at that point. So it's very difficult to make those arguments. But I think that the establishment of Israel was done for very good reasons. But look at how many people have died due to the establishment of Israel. Now, obviously, I mean, you can do the counter history and be like, how many people would have died if you hadn't established Israel? I don't know. But a good thing done for a good reason can still have very negative consequences. No, no, nobody, nobody would debate that. Nobody, and you know, but we must keep in in mind that hindsight is twenty twenty, and when we, the problem we were trying to solve with creating the Israeli state was that the um, Jewish mm. people would would have state protection, so that you didn't mm. have a persecution of the Jewish people. 
you're not trying to solve the problem of um, yeah, of well, peace in the Middle East. Because if 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 you're trying to solve that problem, if you, and you had the power to, uh, you know, don't think the responsibility then yeah, is to create absolutely. the state of Israel. So, so the example must remember, you know, pick your horses for courses. Make sure that the right um, that the solution you're creating is is going to solve the right problem. Because if you, if the if to to come back to the example, if the purpose is to is to protect um, Jewish people, do you think the state of Israel has done that? Yes. So the responsibility to protect them has has um has occurred. But if your responsibility is also to protect the people of Palestine, then maybe the creating the state of <coughs> Israel is not the idea is not of the, the best responsibility solution. to protect. Your responsibility to protect is to protect everyone, regardless of who they are. I mean, if you again to bring it back to your question, let's take Spider Man, put him in 1945, and put these. Like, let's make him a philosopher <laughs> king and say, hey, Spider-Man, so look, we've got a whole bunch of people who have just suffered a holocaust. Um, these are our options. You know, we could leave them be. And if we do that historically, probably they're going to end up being persecuted again because they have been forever. Or at this point, we have the op- op- you know possibility to establish a state. I think Spider-Man himself would have taken the formation of Israel as a possibility. Then let's take Spider-Man and not let him see the the, the buildup of that history. Just transport him to the present and say, "Okay, Spider Man, look at what your look at what you did. Look at what your actions caused." I think that he would be quite horrified. He'd be like, "Fuck! I wish I hadn't done that. Maybe there was a, a better option." Um, I mean, I'm straw manning <laughs> Spider Man so much. But <laughs> but, but <laughs> no, it, it's true that, but. That you you do have a responsibility to um to factor in all those variables, but in doing but but it takes a lot of knowledge to do that. And I'm you know I'm not saying that that you should just go ahead and do what you think is best based on simplified knowledge. It's you should go ahead and do what you think is best according to your power. And that's why I find that the the um you your your power oh, sorry your, your responsibility is directly yes. proportional to the amount of power that you have if 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 peter parker is not a philosopher king we can't make him have the responsibility of creating the israeli state or at least deciding mm. on its you know on its existence so if he only has the power to stop muggings in new york then yeah. by god yeah. that's his responsibility and i agree um and i think that that responsibility to protect on the part of super superheroes applies to all superheroes so you know, like let's look at somebody like Tony Stark. Tony. St- whoa, whoa. So you, so you think that because you have uh, an incredible amount of intelligence, you no, have no, no, to no, become no. That's not what I'm a superhero? I'm saying if you have power, if you have superpowers, you should become a superhero. I was about to say because oh. you're about to make me into a superhero, and I've been let's avoiding that path all my life. Let's back it up a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but let's look at Tony Stark. Like Tony Stark made a very wise decision, I think, when he stopped producing arms, when he saw the damage that his arms dealing was doing to the world. He And that's not even his superpower. I mean, Tony... No, he just... No, now he yeah, just built, like, loads of Iron Man suits. Because um, they're yeah, totally safe. He, he, and only he and Iron... And, and Ultron. And, and Iron Patriot can yeah. use them. Okay, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that's, a, that's such a good example. Iron Man attempting to protect the entire planet... Built fucking Ultron. <laughs> Terrible outcome from a very good. Thank you, Brock, for providing me this awesome scenario. I'm, I, so I mean, I'm only building it up because I'm, my argument is that I, Tony Stark is not a real superhero. He's one of those people who thinks his power is greater than it is, and so he takes on more responsibility than he has to. The same as the same okay, as Batman. Yeah. 
tries to do too much, yeah, you know, releases, you know, the Arkham prison and now he's got too much, too big of a problem and the Joker wins. Like, leave I, this see, stuff this to Thor. Thing. Come on. Well, yeah, but what? Thor's, Thor's a god. No, don't leave it to Thor. Leave it to Odin. Like, you know, Odin, he stayed no, out. No, we've spoken about this. Involved. Odin failed us <laughs> on an unholy level with intervening in Earth's crisis. When... He intervened once. He he stopped the ice giants from taking over the planet. Oh, yeah, and when, when Loki came in with his army of Chitauri. Yeah, well, there was family dynamics involved. <laughs> like, you know, it's a different thing. <laughs> oh, so let, let your sons have their, their, their pedantic fight on Earth where we can lose entire cities. Yeah, that's great. But, okay, so this is, this is the interesting thing. And, like, I am absolutely 100% in agreement with you about the principle of the responsibility to protect. But I think... And I know you're gonna you're gonna hate this. I think that the responsibility to protect as a principle in international relations is naive, because of the fact that it's it's heavily centered in human rights. Human rights themselves, especially universal human rights, are naive because the thing is is that you these are political principles. People might say like, these human rights are political principles that have come out of a large scale I can't believe what I'm hearing political it's it's absolutely true why would if it were absolutely true we wouldn't be arguing about it the reason why they're universal is because they're not political it's because they exist before the the human could even become political yes we're made in a social nature but like the right to life is not political protecting it is why why do you think why is it why is the right to life any more universal than any than any other right I mean like the right to human dignity is that a universal principle it's it's i agree with it as a principle it should be established what i'm arguing against is that it's not a natural right of course it's natural it's something that we should have why is it natural it's a, it's a product of our political system the state gives you those rights no 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 the state protects those rights you have them whether the state is there or not okay so if that's the case let's look at situation a situation that we have right now if the if if these rights are natural and they should and they they should be protected, I agree that they should be protected. What I'm arguing against is that they're natural because the fact is, if you don't have a state, you don't have those rights. So, it you you might say from a philosophical point of view that the huge migrant crisis that we're having at the moment, those people who are stateless, they have the philosophical natural right by dint of being human. But if that right is not protected, then it, it's meaningless. It's an, it's an absolutely meaningless principle. In, a, in, in realist terms, it doesn't matter. Because the fact is, is that the responsibility to protect doesn't apply to stateless individuals. What you're saying is that because the state isn't there to protect your right to life, you don't have it. I'm saying that saying that those people have the right to life without the mechanism to protect those rights is exactly the same as not having that right. It's semantics and it doesn't matter one way or the other if you say they have the right to life or not because without the mechanism to give those rights and protect them they still don't have them i'm not saying that they shouldn't have those rights i'm not saying that those rights shouldn't be protected but i'm saying from a realist perspective that in the world we live in today when you don't have a state to protect those rights like the refugees don't have at the moment they don't have a state then the, those rights aren't protected and by... Okay, so, so, every, by so everyone who doesn't have a state doesn't have the right to life. So if, so if you're living in Somalia, Somalia, good luck to you. 
That's that's that is the situation at the yeah. moment. That is what yes, happens. Yes, but that's not. That's why we have the responsibility to protect to make sure that those situations change. But the, but the responsibility to protect only applies to people who have a state. Somalia is a failed state. There is no legal responsibility on the part of the United States to intervene in a crisis that is going on in Somalia. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. They don't it's intervene. It's a terrible example, because Peter, because you're thinking of only, you're only thinking of conflict that can occur between the state and the people. Right. If large factions of warlords in Somalia decided to go to war with each other and lots and many, many people died, so many we couldn't even count how mm -hmm. many died, do you think the international community is going to sit by and watch? Or do you think they're going to resort to those primordial uh, criteria of if, if there is no state to encourage to protect them, if they're not going to try and do it themselves? But they're absolutely, that is exactly the, what happened. The, that's, that's what happened in Somalia. When the state failed, America pulled out. Yeah, that's not to say that the responsibility we, to protect doesn't exist. It just means that they chose not to exercise it. Oh, yeah. No, no. I, I, I'm, that's what I, I started saying this in the beginning. I agree with the responsibility to protect. What I'm saying is that you've got an idealistic argument on one side saying that everybody has the right to life. And from a philosophical point of view, I agree with you. What I'm saying is from a practical point of view, if... The responsibility to protect is not exercised universally, then it's as if it doesn't exist. So if you don't have a Spider-Man who's running around the world actively looking out for people, then you may as well say that the, that the, the, the ideals don't exist. If the ideals aren't protected, then what's their point? They're just words on paper. Okay, so, it's, so, so a principle like this requires its exercising in order to exist. Absolutely. So if anything... I would, I would make the argument that the responsibility to protect, and this is almost circular because going back to what I said in the beginning, the responsibility to protect needs to be expanded to not states intervening in other states. Oh, my God, I'm making a one-world government <laughs> argument. But um, that the responsibility to protect should actually be on the UN, not necessarily on states. Who, who can protect the refugees? Why... Why does America have any responsibility to protect the refugees if they're, you know, out in the because sea? Because it has the, the power to do so. It does. Absolutely. It does have the power to do so. And it should, from a moral point of view, protect those people. But it doesn't. It's not doing that. So how do we solve that problem? I'm looking for solutions here, Okay. 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 I'm looking for a modern-day Spider-Man, which I think is the UN, and the UN can go and protect us. Okay, then we need to educate U.S. politicians in the fact that in, in, in the ways of the deontological um, value <laughs> paradigm. You want, you want to moralize? You want to moralize politicians? Yes, I want Donald Trump to learn the importance of people's lives. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But then, I mean… Absolutely. I, I agree with you. I, I absolutely agree with you, but I think that we need to move the focus from this deontological point of view, from this point of view of like absolute morality, which, as I've said, from a philosophical point of view, I agree with. But we need to almost turn our international arena into Spider-Man so that they can exercise that power when they, when they, you know, on a moral point of view. So, yes, I agree with you. The, the political... Uh, the political machine needs to be set up so that it can intervene in these situations. When we have global crises, it, they, they sh it should absolutely be intervention. 100%. I agree. So then, so, so you want a solution to why it's not being implemented? Exactly. And my, 
the, the, the reason I think it's not being implemented is because human rights, for, from a practical point of view, do not exist when the individual is stateless. I'm, so for, what I'm saying is from a practical point of view, when you don't have human, when you don't have a state, you don't have human rights. You might have human rights on paper, but that paper is worthless when you're in the middle of the, when you're in the middle of the ocean on a boat and nobody's coming to help you out. You know, what, what good does it do to say to those people, you have the right to life when nobody's coming in to protect that right? The right is only as valuable as the protection that it's afforded. No, I think that's backwards because if it, if it doesn't exist until someone protects it, then why would someone protect you? Because it's the, it's, it's a moral, it's a good thing to do. It's the, it's a moral principle. I think that we are becoming more moral. We are becoming better at, as being, at being human beings. I mean, I think the process so, of the human rights development is, 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 is progressing in itself. So, so you, so but, you're saying that the reason, the only reason that that Peter Parker protects anyone, or the reason why he puts on the suit, is to protect American citizens. That he only believes that they have the that, that he can afford the, that he can afford to protect their rights. Well, no, because Peter Parker, as I said in the beginning, is accountable to no one. Peter, that's what makes yeah. him so great. Is that Peter Parker? It protects everybody, but the American government usually protects its own interests it's a political entity i mean i mean i can say to you i mean how 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 much value does it give me to go into zimbabwe and tell farmers that they have the right to food when they can't when they're starving to death i need to give them food or give them the ability to make food before that they they can understand that they have the right okay. to it. am i right did i work yeah 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 yes. yeah yeah no you but it's and sad I, you know what this is a it's such a it's it's such a fine line to walk we because on one side, your I think that your thinking is absolutely necessary. The absolute moral position is what created the human rights agenda in the first place, was highly idealistic philosophers coming up and saying, human beings, by dint of being human, have the right to life, and we need to put that into policy. And But at the end of the day, you also need practical policymakers to make that happen. So these two sides have to work together. And that's what makes it interesting when comparing it to Spider-Man because this is going on in Spider-Man's head. You know, he's saying, I have the responsibility to protect people. I have the power to do it. I'm going to go do it because he's one guy. It makes it super easy. When you're dealing with a state, it's a bit it's just a, But you, you start with your value paradigm with when he decides to protect them. He says that's where the right comes in. It, so the, the, the right only has value once Peter Parker's decided that – the, that you know, uh, Gwen Stacy is actually worth saving, but you know what I'm starting is saying that she actually has you know the right to be saved. Um, in fact, you know before whether he makes the decision or not, um, so it doesn't diminish her right to life whether she dies or not. It, so so coming but coming at it from those two the different perspectives doesn't tarnish the value. I don't think it just changes the the point at which you, you know, your perspective on where you think it starts. Yes, I agree, and I think I. I think it's very important to be aware of both sides of this and also, you know, have the mental, you know, the mental flexibility to move between them as well as political scientists or policymakers or whatever okay. our listeners are doing. Okay, so lives. then to provide a solution to, to my problem with understanding your perspective um, is that we should actually have a government of Peter Parker's. Uh, yeah, but educated as political scientists. 
<laughs> okay, so, um, so I, we want I, I, so then so then never mind the superpower part. We actually only want all poli- all politicians to understand that with great power comes great responsibility. Yes, absolutely. And is that at the end of the day not what Plato was saying when he wrote the Republic that he wanted uh, the idea of you know well educated moral people who understood political science and understood the way that these things work, the understood the difference between the practicalities and the ideals running the Republic. That's, that's what Plato wants. Are you begging me to become president? Um, no, I I think I'm begging myself (laughs) because I think I would make a pretty good, (laughs) see that. And this is the problem is as soon as somebody starts studying political science, nobody wants to become a politician. There's very few political science students who actually end up wanting to be politicians, which is Plato and, you know, Plato and Socrates would find very sad. Um, Very sad indeed. But yeah, I mean, but yeah, like I think that that's that's the interesting thing about you know Spider Man is is a representation of the responsibility to protect, but in the real world, it's much more complicated than just saying you have you have the right to be protected and I'm going to protect you. I think yeah, it is more complicated, but I wouldn't call it naive. I would just call it idealistic, and I'm on that idealistic side. I I still stand by that. I think the the practicality, the practical problem, shouldn't prohibit entirely prohibit one. I think it should just be it should just be taken into account. So I think what we're arguing for is like a, an expedient practicing of responsibility to protect. Which, if we go back to those initial criteria, is exactly what they're trying to do. Is they, you know, they're trying to get the state to protect the people. They're trying to get the international community to support that state and to act diplomatically towards that state. And when that all breaks down, you know, then become the Peter Parker Avenger and, and get involved. Absolutely, I think maybe naive is a, is a wrong term because it's become a pejorative term. Yeah. Um, so they are getting a small victory. Sorry. Okay, well done. <laughs> um, but I think that this is an interesting and a very interesting argument. It, and um, I'd love to hear back from our let's listeners. Let's hear back from well. listeners, but I also want to promise the listeners that I actually think we, we should do an intervention episode with uh, with maybe the Avengers and, and Arrow TV show. Yeah, and when it's so when it's good to when it's good to intervene, yeah. you know, when you can't. And hopefully yeah, by that I stage, agree. Peter would have earned enough money to watch Civil War. Still hasn't seen it. <laughs> okay, guys, thanks so much. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. If you did not access this via our website, landsofleviathan.com, then please visit the site to find other materials such as all of our other ACOS tracks and articles. And if you would like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. So send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. It's L A N D S. O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N. And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast. And if you didn't listen to that directly, then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.